true account of what happened on Flight 93 in the year 2001. A man like that was on a plane, and the plane was hijacked by terrorists, and he rushed the cockpit. But before he did, he called the Verizon customer, uh, service person, and prayed the Lord's Prayer with that person. We're learning how to pray in our church in this series, and we're taking a look at that as the beginning of our Veterans Day service. If you're here for the first time, we welcome you, and we hope that you feel the power of what's happening here by the power of the Spirit. We also want to welcome those on podcast, particularly those listening from Mexico City. How do we know people are listening in Mexico City? I don't know, but my tech people tell me that they are, so... So that's exciting. Well, we welcome you to this church, and we hope you feel the power of what's happening. We're taking a look at the greatest prayer ever told. We just saw it on the screen just there. And, uh, you know, this is one of these prayers, I don't know if you're like me, that you pray so many times, but you've never, you've almost said so many times you've stopped, stopped thinking about what it really means. And uh, so we're trying to unpack this prayer. Some of the language in the prayer we just don't use anymore. Uh, for example, we don't uh, use the word art anymore, how art thou. We don't say that, or we don't say the word hallowed anymore, which means holy. We don't say the word thine. If someone asks you, how art thine? You could say hallowed, I guess. But we don't say that anymore. In fact, that's why kids have such a hard time with this prayer. A little kid the other day was saying, our Father who art in heaven, how do you know my name? Instead of hallowed. And um, another kid said, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from email, which I really, really like that one. I think I need to be delivered from email. So we're trying to unpack some of this tough language. We're also trying to unpack some of these really tough ideas in this prayer. For example, when we pray to our Father, we're praying to a higher Father, not our earthly Father, obviously. When we pray to heaven, we're praying to a place where God can see into our lives even more than we can see. When we pray to the Holy One, we're praying to the One who is the highest of high when we come connect with Him. And when we pray to the kingdom, we're praying about something that's coming, and yet also something that we can look forward to, and it is also the end. So we're taking a look at this prayer, and we're going to take a look at, we've looked at the first seven words, Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Then last week we looked at this next 14, uh, for thy kingdom come, thy will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Today we're going to look at the next 17 words. Now this is the very heart of the message. This is the meatiest part of the prayer. And if you feel lost at any point in the service today, uh, just raise your hand and then I'll do the sermon again so that you can hear it. No, but don't worry. It, um, it is going to be a lot to take in today, but I hope that you take the depth of the prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray. Incidentally, if we were going to try to be a great uh, uh, symphony composer, a great musician, we'd want to study, you know, the greatest person. We'd want to study Beethoven, right? You see his notes on Beethoven's fifth, ba, 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 ba. You'd study those notes. If you wanted to be a great swimmer, you would study Michael Phelps, right? Because his turns were just perfect. We're going to study the, the aspects of Jesus's prayer, the greatest prayer, in order to become better prayers. Let's take a look at the next 17 words about what God wants to teach us today. It begins this way today. Give us today our daily bread. This actually comes from 1,300 years before Jesus told this prayer. The Israelites are in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula there in the wilderness, and they have been wandering around for about 10 years, and they have run out of food. And they have nowhere to turn to get food. The food, there's a desert area, there's no food. So they ask God for food, and God provides them manna. This is daily bread. To this very day, nobody really knows what manna was. 
probably wasn't a loaf of bread, but it could have been a couple of things. It could have been uh, this sort of flakes off of the grass that they would have picked up. Other scholars think it was, uh, uh, what is this? Uh, Coriander. Thank you. We have a cook in the church. Coriander seeds. Another person thinks it could be tamarisk fruit, or another scientist thought it might be bug spit. This is a true story, but that doesn't work for me. Give us today our daily bug spit. Just doesn't really work for me. Now notice it's a plural. It doesn't say my daily bread. It doesn't give me my food. It's our food. The notion is that if you're not eating, then I'm not completely satisfied in my life. If you're struggling, then I'm struggling. And notice all the corporate language in this. Our Father, our temptations, our daily bread. So that's the first line today. The second line is this. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Now, how many of you have been raised in a tradition where you say trespasses? Put your hand up if you are traditionally say trespasses. Most of this church. How many have just said debts your whole life? One or two? How many don't care? Put your hand up in the air right now. (laughs) You may want to know where this comes from. The translation of debts comes from 1300s, from John Wycliffe, and trespasses comes from 1526. That's basically it. But actually, the word debts is probably a little better in this translation. And as we look on this Veterans Day Sunday about debts, this may not be a bad thing for us to think about. I read the paper this last week, and our California debt is now $25 billion. That's nothing, though, of course. Compared to our national debt, it is $140 billion PM. I didn't know what PM means. It means per month, apparently. Now, that's nothing compared to our national debt annual, or our overall debt is $13,700,000,000. Actually, it's not $14 trillion. I wrote this sermon on Thursday, and now it's Sunday, so it's gone up. But anyway, let's move on. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But actually, the notion of debt is not just, it's not a financial one. Jesus said, think about debt because it is, there is a moral debt in your life. The same way that clock ticks up, the financial clock, it's very disconcerting when you see it. We have moral debts, which click up. Give you an example. This last Thursday, I committed a small sin. I was writing my sermon at home, and my computer didn't work, and so I had to pack all my books up, and then I had to come down to the church to write my sermon. But then my computer at the, here at the church didn't work, and a very innocent, colorful metaphor came out of my mouth. <laughs> now, the problem is that Shauna, my secretary, heard this colorful metaphor, and I'm sure I was a bad example to her. Can you see this thing clicking up? And then I'm sure that her mood was brought down and she brought the rest of the office down for about half an hour just based on that one little moral debt. And the thing is, we all have these things that we do and it goes over and over and over. And what Jesus is saying is every single day you should pray, forgive me my debts. Just clear the slate for me today. And we could try to pray for every little thing we do, but you would never get there. Even Martin Luther became a professional confessor in his life. That's all he did and he couldn't keep up with the things that he did. And then the final line we'll look at today, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. A lot of times we think about the things that we need to be forgiven for, but we don't actually think about the things that we need forgiveness, we need to experience forgiveness for, that people have done to us. Sometimes people have looked at this like it's a great big scale. On one side are all the things you've done to others. And the way of cleaning that side out, of lifting up that side, is to give it to God. 
But the other side of the scale is everything that's been done to us. Sometimes we forget that we also need to clear that place out too. And the way we do that is through forgiving others. We'll talk about that. It's not always easy. Well, I don't know about you, but the more we get into this prayer, the more I feel it's very, very complex. It starts out like a beginning day in algebra, and by the end of it, it feels like it's, I don't know where I am in the class. I just missed a day somewhere here. But one of the things that comes to my mind about this prayer is that it's really a prayer that requires trust. It requires trust. It doesn't have a lot of the specific stuff that I want to pray for in that prayer. My wife, Star, and I have been praying together for the last three years every single night. And I hate it when pastors say things like that because it just sounds so self-righteous and like whoop-dee-doo for you. <laughs> but, but honestly, we do it for ourselves. We don't do it in order to be grandiose about it. You see, as Lewis once said, I don't pray in order to change God. I pray that God changes me. So that's why we pray every single night together. And what we have is our little list of stuff that we pray for. We prayed for three years now, and it's pretty much the same list. I just call it our stuff. But, but one of the things that's on our stuff list that we started in October 2007 to pray about is that God might bring about his will to bring a child into our life. Now, we didn't pray for our own baby. We didn't pray maybe that God didn't want us to have a child. But we just wanted God's will as it related to a baby. And about two years ago, God seemed to have heard that prayer, and he brought something wonderful into our life. She's downstairs terrorizing the nursery as we speak. (laughs) Now, not to sound greedy, but we are still committing that prayer to God every night. We're praying that God's will might be done as it relates to another little baby in our life. Not that we would have a child. Not that Not that maybe God doesn't want us to have, but we commit that to God. Now, it's very hard to pray that prayer because I would like it if the Lord's Prayer said, Our Father who art in heaven, give us today a daily baby. I would like it if it said, lead us on into changing less diapers or something more specific. My stuff's not in there, and yet it is in there. Because when I say, Lord, your kingdom be done, I'm really asking God that his kingdom would come about in my life and in my wife's life in a way that would be transformative. Now, I know you've got stuff too, and it's probably not baby stuff. You've probably got job stuff or sickness stuff. You've got family stuff. You've got job stuff. I said job stuff. You've got finance stuff. You've got life, and you've got death stuff. And when we pray this prayer... We're really asking that we can trust that stuff to God and that we would pray these words. But it's not easy. I do want to focus on one word today that is very important in our prayer. It's the very center of the prayer. And that is forgiveness. It is one of the most important parts of our entire faith experience. And yet it is very, very hard. So I want to just unpack it a little bit and then we'll finish by saying the Lord's Prayer together. The first thing about forgiveness is when we ask God for forgiveness, it really is instant. It's instant. This woman had this parrot. It was a very rude parrot. Uh, It would say stuff like, work, you're gaining weight, stuff like that. Not nice stuff to hear from your parrot. Or, work, you're ugly. And, uh, you know, no one needs to hear that, especially from a parrot that 
that you're taking care of. So this woman got so tired of this, she put it in the freezer for a little while. She decided to just cool this thing off. But then like 10 seconds into it, she realized that she'd done something wrong. And she also wondered if it was still alive. And she opened up the freezer and the bird is still sitting there. And he says, I'm so sorry. I really should not have said those things. That was really, really mean. Can I ask you one question? She said, sure. What happened to the chicken in here? Um, about, okay. So forgiveness, forgiveness. Okay. Sorry about that one. When we ask God for forgiveness about things we've done, it happens instantly. But we don't always take it in instantly. My team that I'm rooting for keeps going down in the polls even though they keep winning games, Boise State University. I'm really praying about it. God's will be done. But let's look at a game that happened in 1929 between Georgia Tech and the UCLA. It's a big game. Some of you may remember it. And a player by the name of Roy Regal was playing in that game. Roy Regal picked up a fumble that Georgia Tech had dropped, and he picked up and he ran the ball 95 yards in the wrong way. He ran it almost to the goal line where he would score a touchdown for the other team when one of his own teammates actually tackled Roy Regal right before he got there. The stands were going crazy. They were throwing things and they were yelling and they were laughing at Roy Regal. The halftime that was silent in the locker room. They were in there and no one says anything. And then 10 seconds before the second half, the coach said this, all right, boys, listen up. The same team that played the first half is going to play the second half. Now, get back in there. Roy Regal is just sitting there, just feeling mortified. He says, Coach, I can't go in there. I can't. I'm a laughingstock. People think I'm an idiot. Coach said, Roy, it's only half the game. There is still a half to go. Now, get in and play football. Now, Roy did play, but here's the sad thing. He carried that stupid mistake with him until he died about 10 years ago. We do the same thing. We get instant forgiveness. Like the coach, God instantly says, get back in there and play a second half. We carry that with us and carry that with us. God wants us to leave it here in the locker room. So maybe that's the message that God wants to tell you today. Leave it here and don't carry it with you anymore. I heard about a, an office, an FBI office in Wisconsin. They were trying to go through their files and, and like delete some of their back files. They were piling up all these files. And they sent a memo to Washington saying, Dear Washington FBI, can we please delete some of these files and shred some of them? They're just piling up everywhere. Uh, the office in Washington said, Sure, go ahead. Delete them. Just make sure you keep one copy of everything. Thank you, Washington. God doesn't keep a second copy of the things that we do. They're deleted. They're shredded. So God's forgiveness is instant. Now, our forgiveness takes time. Forgiving other people for the things they've done to us, it takes time. And, and asking forgiveness for the things we've done to others, it takes time. It takes prayer. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes, it takes work. It's not easy. And people who expect it to be instant are, are kidding themselves. I talk to so many people in counseling who say, well, so-and-so just won't forgive me for that thing that I did. And I say, yeah, it's going to take some time. Let me tell you why. Three reasons. Number one, the immediate impacts of the things that happen to us are not always apparent. 
My mom got in a car crash the other day up in Sacramento. It wasn't a terrible one, but it was one of these deals where her rear bumper got totally messed up by the guy who hit her from behind. And she got out of the car, and the guy got out, and he said, I'm so sorry. And mom said, hey, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Just give me your license, and we'll, we'll talk later. So the guy did, and so he for, she gave, forgave him for that bumper thing. Now, she didn't know that like a month later, she would begin to feel the effects of whiplash in her life. And when she was forgiving the guy, she didn't expect that this other thing would come along. Now, sometimes the things that happen to us actually don't have immediate impacts. And so it takes a time to process those things. The second, second reason that uh, we need time to process in prayer and, and work is that sometimes what's happening isn't actually what's happening. I had this friend who is a power lifter, um, really nice guy, totally like muscle-bound, you know, brain, you know, muscle-crowding brain tissue kind of guy, but really nice guy. And he wouldn't hurt a fly. I mean, honestly, he was totally buff, but he wouldn't hurt anyone. I mean, you could, you could yell at him or push him around. I mean, nobody could trip him off, except for when someone told him to shut up. Now, I never told him to shut up. I'm not that dumb. But I heard about people who did, and it wasn't pretty. And I asked him one day, well, what's the deal with you? You know, like someone could spit in your face and and you don't do anything, but if they say shut up, you go nuts. He said, I don't know either, but I think it was my mom who said that to me when I was a kid. She said it to me every single day, and it insulted me in a way that I've never really forgiven her for. Now, when we say that that guy needs to forgive someone for something... Are we talking about the poor guy on the street who says, shut up? Or is it his mother? So sometimes the things that are happening aren't really the things that are happening. But the most important, the most important thing, the reason that it takes time to forgive and, and work and prayer and Holy Spirit is because our emotions are like this tangled web of, of stuff. And if we'd like rip them apart, we can do a lot of damage. There's this guy in Brazil who was going through the rainforest, and he went through this river, and he got to the other side, and he saw all of these leeches on his body when he got to the other side. Now, he's like you, you and I in the West, we want to tear stuff off as soon as it happens. And so he started to begin to tear these leeches off, but his guide said to him, don't do that, because part of the leech is actually going to stay there, and it'll get infected. Like I said, well, what am I supposed to do? What you do is you go to a balsam bath for 15 minutes and you let the leeches just fall off. I love that Jesus, whenever he healed somebody, he always said, go to the temple and bathe and you will be free. That's something what he's saying to you today. Don't rip off the things that have happened to you. Commit them to God, commit them to prayer and let them just fall off. And that's the process of forgiveness. The last thing I want to leave with you today about forgiveness is it is total freedom. It's very important that this is the very middle of the prayer. You know, we begin with Father who is in heaven and daily bread, but this is the heart, forgiveness. And Jesus meant it to be that way because he knew that when we are totally forgiven and when we forgive others, we have complete freedom. And what I've experienced in my ministry is that when people forgive, no matter how bad the thing that happened to them was, they experience freedom. And there is nothing 
that is too awful to have happened to us that forgiveness can't give us freedom. Biggest story of forgiveness I've ever heard, true story, happened in South Africa during the apartheid days. Again, apartheid was when the whites and the black communities were separated, and there was fighting between both communities, but most of it was the whites perpetrating and persecuting the black communities. This one police officer by the name of Vandebroek did terrible things to people in the black community. Vandebroek was an officer with the white South African police force, and he went in and he took this uh, little boy, this black little boy, and he killed this little boy, and he took the little boy out of the neighborhood, and they burned the body. Awful stuff. Then he went in with his buddies, his police buddies, and he took this husband of this wife, and she, they, he took him out, and he killed this guy as well. Burned the body. So years later, the wife of these, this boy and this husband had a chance to, to be at the trial of this policeman. And Vandebroek, this awful policeman, is up there that he's done terrible things. And the judge says, this man is guilty, all right? You get to do anything you want. You say it, and we'll do anything you want to this guy. She said, okay, I want three things. Number one, I want you to take me to the place that this man killed my family members so I can collect up the ashes and give them a proper burial. Number two, she said, I am a young woman and I have no more kids and I have no more husband and yet I have a lot of love to give still. So I want you, judge, to mandate that this young man comes to my house once a month so I can be a mother to him. Because I can see that you, young man, never had a brother or a mother, or else you wouldn't have acted the way you have. So you make sure he comes to my house once a month and I'll be his mother. And number three, she said, I want him to feel forgiveness in a real way. So I can't see very well, but if someone would take my hand, I want to go and hug this boy so he can feel the forgiveness of God. As they were leading her off the stand, Vandebroek fainted dead away. Power of forgiveness was that big. And then someone, as true story, someone in the courtroom began to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Forgiveness is freedom. Let's say the prayer that Jesus taught us to say, I'll say a line, and you can say trespasses or debts, but let's pray to our God. Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom is coming. Your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen.